All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, introducing Roger Waters, former lead singer of Pink Floyd, of course, and with his own solo career. He's on tour right now. This is not a drill is the name of the tour. And of course, he's an activist on a lot of important political topics uh, important to us. Welcome to the show, Roger. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thank you. I uh, really appreciate you joining us today. Um, and look, I got to say before we really start here that I've been listening to Pink Floyd my whole life and, you know, your music and, and your post Pink Floyd music too. Uh, but it's always been a big part of my life and that goes for a lot of people listening to this. And so really appreciate you. It's great okay. stuff. Um, okay. Now business. I'm very curious uh, how you got started on sticking up for the Palestinians. Uh, was there a particular event that kind of opened your eyes to this situation going on there? Uh, yeah, there is. In 2006, in the middle of a European tour, I accepted an invitation uh, to perform in Haikon Stadium in Tel Aviv, and that was the start of it all. From there, obviously, I, I started getting some responses uh, initially from North African uh, email addresses, and then very, very quickly, um, I met the main man, who is Omar Boguti, um, because that was just about six months or a year after BDS had started, uh, had been started by Palestinian civil society. So I engaged in a, a, a lengthy um, email correspondence with Omar. And uh, eventually, well, not eventually, almost immediately, I cancelled the gig, which I believe was sold out in, um, I, I never know how you pronounce it, Hayakon Park, I think it is, in Tel Aviv. Uh, and as, an, as a sort of act of compromise, um, I moved it to somewhere else in Israel. I probably shouldn't have done, but I did at the time. I moved it to somewhere called Wahat Asalam. Uh, which in Hebrew is uh, Nevis Shalom, uh, which is a sort of ecumenical community where they grow chickpeas, and it's about halfway between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. Um, and so we did we did an outdoor gig there to about sixty thousand Israelis, um, which was lovely. Of course, they they all did all the things that fans of Dark Side of the Moon do all over the world, and stood up and applauded loudly at the end of the show. And backstage was very comfortable, nice, shabby chic sofas and lots of very good food and whatever. Everything went swimmingly until the moment when ignorant me at the end of the show um, spoke into the microphone and said, now is the time for you young Israelis to start doing the right thing. Make peace with your neighbors, you know, establish good relations with the Palestinian and blah, blah, blah. And they went from, yeah, Roger, Pink Floyd, whoa, you're the greatest thing ever since, you know, whatever. Since Lord Balfour, you're the greatest thing ever. 
and two. What the fuck is he talking about? We ain't making peace with anybody. What? Is this guy, it's literally, it was, I'm being slightly dramatic, but only slightly. And I witnessed that again. Uh, another occasion, the other occasion when I witnessed it most um, obviously was when I was asked a year later, I went back and I went all around the occupied territories and saw everything that I could. Um, and I was looked after on that trip by Allegra Pacheo, who was um, a Jewish lady who was looking after UNRWA in Jerusalem at the time. Anyway, uh, I went to give a talk to some students at a film school in, in Jerusalem, Israeli film students. And I went in and there were about 50 or 60 of them and about 10 or 12 lecturers, professors, whatever you want to call them, gathered and they were all smiling. They, it was the same thing. There was a sort of adulation, Pink Floyd adulation going on. And then I, I said, hey, before we start, let me ask you guys a question because I just recently been working with somebody who'd made a documentary film called The Heart of Janine, which is about a Palestinian kid who gets killed by the Israeli army, by the IDF, and he's in this sort of vegetative state, and there's a big thing that goes on trying to persuade his relatives and the local imam and in Janine uh, to allow uh, his body parts to be um, harvested from his dead body and uh, distributed throughout the territories to people in need. And they agreed to that, to their internal credit. And a documentary film was made of it, and it's a great film. So I said, before we start, how many of you have seen the film Heart of Janine? And there was a silence, which I expected, because I didn't expect it there. And I started explaining to them what it was about and why it was necessary that they, sh that they watch it. And I got exactly the same reaction that I had at Nevis Shalom, when I made my speech at the end of the thing. It was, it's, if you've never seen it, you never want to, because it is ugly beyond anything you can imagine. The shutters coming down, you can almost hear the prison doors slamming on any possibility of anything humane happening in this community. When you see it and hear it, because you can hear it, the noise is, deafening of their resistance to even listening to anything that would make even the slightest dent in their preconception uh, that the Palestinians are animals and dogs and terrorists and they deserve to be wiped out and shut down like mangy dogs in the street. And that is enough, I would hope, to get any sane person with a heart and a soul to join any movement to try and make that dent in that surface. Mm -hmm. So that's how it started. And that was in 2006, mm -hmm. and so 16 years ago. Do you find that a big part of that is kind of the difference between the reality and the common narrative of the situation there? In other words most of the West sort of seeing the Palestinians in the same way that you just described the Israelis see them, and you're trying to enlighten people that there's more to the situation. I've found that people seem to really not know much about it, and when they really learn about who's occupying who, they come to see your point of view pretty quickly. Yeah, but, yeah, but the powers that be 
pour an enormous amount of energy into nobody seeing any of it. How, how, how could this possibly have gone on for the last 70, 70 years? The United Nations has been seeing it for nearly 70 years. There's a new General Assembly resolution coming up, I believe, at the, at the coming 77th United Nations annual meeting. It's coming up. There will be a new, and it and it will be the same resolution that always gets vetoed in the Security Council by Israel, the United States of America, the Marshall Islands, possibly Australia, and two or three other kind of bought and paid for non-entities. And uh, so that's like that's like a, a 129 to four or five or six or however many there are on the Israeli uh, United States side of the argument. And it's been more or less like that for the last 70 years. But unfortunately, um, the United Nations is a flawed organization which has a power of veto with the five permanent members of the Security Council. And so it has no teeth, really. And uh, so there's, there's precious little it can do except make a noise, but it's a noise that the mainstream media is far more powerful than the United, than the General Assembly of the United Nations. So the mainstream, in the United States, that is. Uh, maybe it is in Russia too, I don't know. I know I'm going to be accused of being a Putin apologist for saying anything out loud in this atmosphere. But the mainstream media in America is the mouthpiece of the American government. If anybody comes to my show, they will see that. I write it on the screen over and over and over again. But to get people to, I, and I think that people are beginning to see the first glimmers of that light in the United States of America. I'm sitting here looking out of the window at Alcatraz as we speak. <laughs> and it's beautiful. It's a sunny day, rarely for San Francisco. It's the most beautiful day outside. But I always think about Alcatraz as always a sort of symbol of um, the man's reach into all of our lives. So it's an interesting place to be seeing right now. Yeah. Uh, a prison no longer, but uh, certainly, you know, with a reputation as being the worst of them. Uh, the Israel of the San Francisco Bay, I guess. The Gaza Strip of the San Francisco Bay, maybe. Um, so now, it does seem like, um, along with the Palestinian plight, that the Julian Assange case shares something very familiar, not just the oppression going on and all of that, but the vast difference between the common narrative and the reality of the situation, which is why mm -hmm. I think it's so valuable the way you stick up for him all the time. A lot of people might be under the impression he's a really bad guy and not the kind of guy that a guy like you would want to stick up for. And so you really kind of have a burden of explanation on Assange's behalf that you guys are getting him wrong. Here's what's really going on with Assange. I bet you really open a lot of eyes with that, right? I've no idea how many, how many eyes I open, um, but it is one of the most desperately despicable things that's going on in the world at the moment is the way the United States of America is persecuting Assange because he published some truths that the United States government and the people who own the United States government did not want published. So they're killing him for it. They decided to kill him. They, also, something that many people don't know is that um, the CIA made plans to actually assassinate Julian Assange. 
This is all coming up now in a court case that's just that has started now in Spain, and we we await the outcome of that case uh, with great interest. But the but the um, the smear campaign that the United States government and the mainstream mainstream media that are in that government's pocket uh, produced to smear Julian Assange to take away any public sympathy for him was monstrous, a pack of lies, and extremely effective. I would recommend anybody who is listening to this to read Neil Smeltz's book, The Trials of Julian Assange. Uh, and then there's a new book coming out as well by Stefania Morizzi, an Italian journalist who has done the most extensive research into the judicial procedures or injudicial procedures in the Julian Assange case. Um, and but and but they should only do the make this investigation if they caught care at all about human rights or the law, because the United States government does not care about human rights or the law at all. Because if it did, the Julian Assange test case would show us that it did. Because this is a man who is being murdered by the state, slow, slow murder who has committed no crime of any kind under any international law. The only crime he's committed, and which he admitted to, is a minor bail infringement in the United Kingdom, for which he is banged up in the highest security prison, Belmarsh Prison, which is on the Thames Estuary. Um, yeah, in the Thames Estuary. I was just about to liken it to Alcatraz, but Alcatraz isn't actually, it's, a, it's actually an island, whereas Belmarsh is on the mainland. And, and he's a completely innocent man. So the British government, and it used to be Boris Johnson, it's now this appalling woman, Liz Truss, um, who is in complete cahoots with and under the thumb of Washington, D.C., is conniving to keep him locked up until he dies and also conniving to extradite him to the United States where they will definitely kill him by locking him up, which will kill him. It's already killing him. He's, he's essentially been incarcerated for nearly 10 years. So it's the most open and shut case that you could possibly have staring you in the face of the absolute truth that neither the United States government nor the UK government gives a fig for the law or human rights. You know, uh, it's really unfortunate in America, both political sides, the major ones, have real reason to hate Assange. He embarrassed the Bush government and the Republicans when he helped with the, you know, published the Manning leak. Uh, which he just published it. He didn't leak it. He just received the leak. Um, but so that was the Iraq and Afghan war logs and the State Department cables, which also, you know, revealed some things about uh, the Obama administration as well. Um, but then you had his supposed uh, connivance with the Russians, but his actual publishing of some oh, of those. Ho. Some ho, 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 ho. Yeah, exactly. But he did publish some of those emails that embarrassed the Democrats in the summer of 16. Those and so emails. the Democrats those, hold those that emails. grudge. Uh, I'll shut up. No, I won't shut up because 
as anyone with half a brain knows, the, the DNC emails were released by somebody in the DNC. They had nothing to do with hacking. They had nothing, nothing to do with the Russians. They weren't released. We know because we know the person who took them from the person who brought them on a stick out of the DNC headquarters and gave them to somebody, and that person gave them to WikiLeaks. Mm -hmm. None of these people at the ends of these stories, of course, are speaking about it publicly because they need to protect the source, and quite rightly so. But the fact that Julian Assange published something that showed that Hillary Clinton and the DNC were illegally um, mining Bernie Saunders' run to become the presidential candidate for the Democratic Party. That should have been public knowledge. And it, it, and it embarrasses Hillary Clinton and the DNC because it shows that they're full of shit. Okay, so what, but they, they should be embarrassed by what they did, not by what whoever leaked it did and by the publisher who published it. Why would they do such a thing? Because they're scoundrels, that's why. And, and so, they, so they're embarrassed by it. But that is exactly why we need Julian Assange. We need people like that. How come the, I've forgotten their names now, but the Watergate journalists, who I know, I've met them both at Cocktail. Woodward and Bernstein. Exactly, Woodward and Bernstein. They're lauded all over the world because they uncovered a, um, a, disaster, a political and legal disaster mm-hmm. in the Nixon administration. What, has everything changed now that we no longer want to find out when people in high office are breaking the law? Or, or people in our armed services are murdering people in the streets of Baghdad. We don't want to know about that. Apparently not. Yeah. Well, we do. I want to know. Yeah. I am a concerned citizen. It is absolutely fundamental to anywhere that can call itself a democracy that the public are informed and that they need to be informed by the fourth estate. The fourth estate is the press. Unfortunately, the press in the, in the United States of America now is owned either by Rupert Murdoch or some other shyster, and they limit what they will report to what the government wants them to report. So they are under lock and key. Everything you read in the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, thank you, Jeff Bezos, you prick, and the New York Times and all the other big papers is under the control of the ruling class. That is why Julian Assange was so fundamentally important to we the people, and that is why they're killing him. And that is the truth. I can verify one thing there, too, or as far as it goes, that Craig Murray told me on this show that he knows who leaked the DNC emails and that it was had nothing to do with the Russians whatsoever. And he knew it firsthand. Had met with mine, too, brother. Uh huh. I, I did. I Craig Murray is a friend of mine. Oh, I know, of course. I know all this, sure. you know, so I'm glad I'm glad he spoke to you so you and I can 
<laughs> privately on this webinar go yeah go, go we, for it Craig. we definitely see eye to eye on that and of course you're right too about you know when you mentioned woodward and bernstein well same thing with daniel ellsberg now he wasn't the publisher he was the leaker and he very much broke the law in order to liberate those secrets and he was proud of it and the american people were proud of him and he's always you know at least when i was a kid he was always given credit for helping to end the war in Vietnam by telling the truth about it. And he's, you know, one of the great figures of the 20th century. No one says Daniel Ellsberg is a devil for what he did, except for... Be more Hirsch. Yeah. Let's not forget. Right. He wrote pieces about Cal Lieutenant Kelly and the My Line Massacre. And there have been people like that, and there always will be, because there will always be people that you can't buy. And those are two of them. You know, and John Pilger from Australia is another but close friend of mine. Now, and and there are there are, and you and me, let's include us all. We are actually a big family, but it's very difficult for people who only have access to um, network TV or cable TV or newspapers or things to actually arrive at the same conclusions that we may have done and to join the choir and start singing in harmony with all our brothers and sisters who care about the law and human rights and democracy and liberty, all the things that the United States government pretends it cares about, but it doesn't. It's only interested in the, it's only interest in feathering the nests of the Jeff Bezos's and Mark Zuckerberg's of this world and, and doing their bidding because they pay the government to do their bidding. And the people of America should not be fooled into thinking that the charade that, that they pretend is politics here is a two part. It's not, it's one party with two different names. It's a Punch and Judy show, but Punch and Judy both work for the same corporate masters. And then the evidence is all there. It's plain to read. You only have to look at the way the inequality of wealth in the United States. What happened in COVID? Oh, it was a terrible disaster. It really hit everybody hard. We all lost our jobs, restaurants, everything, business was It killed everything. No, it didn't. The oligarchs, the billionaires got richer and richer and richer all through COVID. And they will get richer and richer and richer all through the Ukraine war and all through all the further wars that come. And they did through Vietnam. You know, the, I mean, it's just the facts are there for anybody to see, but you have to, you, you have to be prepared to go, this doesn't feel right. This doesn't feel like the truth, that this is a miracle. This is what Ronald Reagan called the American miracle. You know, it's not a miracle. It's a disaster for almost everyone. It's not a disaster for the top 0.2 of 1%. It's great for them. They can steal from the rest of us with no problems at all. They can use tax shore, offshore havens. They, don't, they never pay anybody any tax. And how can these people be worth hundreds of billions of dollars when there are homeless on the street, when you have no education system to speak of, no health care, no safety net, no love in this country for your brothers and sisters or for your brothers and sisters in other countries over the land? So I don't know. I, I doubt that I will live to see it all change and that we will 
find ourselves living in a society at some point in the future where we do care for our brothers and sisters. But I hope we do. I so hope I see the first glimmers of light. Yeah, the tide is turning. Hey, y'all, Scott here. Let me tell you about Roberts and Roberts Brokerage, Inc. Who knew? Artificial bank credit expansion leads to price inflation and terribly distorted markets. If you've got any savings left at all, you need to protect them. You need to put some, at least, into precious metals. Well, Roberts and Roberts can set you up with the best deals on silver, gold, platinum, and palladium. And they've been doing this since 1977. Hey, if you just need some sound advice about sound money, they're there for you too. Call Tim Fry and the guys at 800-874-9760. That's 800-874-9760. Or check them out at rrbi.co. That's rrbi.co. You'll be glad you did. At the Libertarian Institute, we publish books. Real good ones. So far, we've got Will Griggs' No Quarter. Sheldon Richmond's Coming to Palestine and What Social Animals Owe to Each Other. And four of mine, Fool's Errand, Enough Already, The Great Ron Paul, and my brand new one, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And I'm happy to announce that we've just published our managing editor Keith Knight's first one, The Voluntarist Handbook, an excellent collection of essays by the world's greatest libertarian thinkers and writers, including me. Check them all out at libertarianinstitute.org slash books. And for a limited time, signed copies of Enough Already and Hotter Than the Sun are available at scotthorton.org slash books. I'll tell you what, um, I'm glad you brought it back to Russia because, of course, this is kind of the worst case scenario in terms of the corruption that you're talking about and the violence, but also in, again, that gap between the narrative and the truth and what you're talking about you know, the difference between people who are just stuck watching MSNBC and CNN and following all the Ukrainian flags on Twitter and that's all they know and an entire other narrative out there, which brings me to something I think is really important for people to read. It was an open letter that you had posted on Facebook uh, with a line um, about uh, did you trade a walk on part in the war for a leading role in a cage? which was an open letter to the leadership of Ukraine about recommending that they seek negotiations. And then the first lady of Ukraine responded to you, and now we've published your response to her at antiwar.com. Kiev must lead the charge for peace. And I just wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the story and a little bit about the case you made in this piece here. Well, it's a big story, but I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. Um, you know, you can't ter- you can't turn this into a short story. All you can do is mention the name John Mearsheimer and say, go and read everything that he wrote in the last 20 years. Because um, U.S. foreign policy has been leading up to um, a terrible, disgusting, awful war uh, in the Ukraine for the last 20 years. Well, 18 years at least, started in 2004, and it's all about NATO and NATO encroaching on the Russian borders. And people have been warning um, the State Department of the United States of America for at least 18 years that they are they are creating conditions where a war in the Ukraine will become inevitable and unstoppable. And a lot, obviously, a big part of that. Um, was not just instigating, but paying for the illegal coup 
that happened in the Ukraine in 2014. It's even now, we even have tape recordings of Victoria Newland, who was Assistant Secretary of State at the time under the Obama administration, talking to the US ambassador and, and between them deciding which of their candidates they were going to impose on the people of the Ukraine as the new president once they'd accomplished the Maidan-inspired coup with the help of people like John McCain and other warmongers, American warmongers. So, so after 2014, obviously the people of Crimea decided in a referendum, 96% of them, of the people living in the Crimea, decided that they were scared stiff of the new, quote, Nazi administration uh, in Kiev. And they decided that they needed Russian protection. And they are, they pleaded with the Russians to let them join the Russian Federation. So all the bollocks at the beginning of this about Russia annexing the Crimea is just a bold, barefaced lie. The people, the people who lived in the Crimea, 96% of them asked to be allowed to join the Federation because they were scared they would be murdered by the regime in Kiev, which, as we know, well, I mean, not, not with that, not with that, the original um, president of Ukraine, who was called, began with P, forgotten his name. I'm really bad at names, as you will understand. Poroshenko. But Poroshenko, okay. But, but then they had a, a, a presidential election in 2019, and Zelensky was, was elected in a landslide as the, uh, new president of the Ukraine, and he was elected on this platform. He said, if I'm president, I will adopt, ratify, and maintain the Minsk II agreement, which we can talk about until the cows come home, if you want, and I will bring peace to the Donbass. He, he, I will stop the civil war in the Donbass. So, so when Russia invaded on the 24th of February this year, heinous as that act was, and I condemn it, and I believe Putin to be a weird gangster-like figure. I have no respect for Vladimir Putin at all. I mean, for God's sake, he rides around on a horse stripped to the waist pretending to shoot polar bears and weird shit like that. He's <laughs> obviously a bit deranged. I have no time for him at all. I hope the people of Russia get somebody a bit more like Gorbachev the president that they had when he withdrew uh, the forces of the USSR from all the Warsaw Pact territories in, in perestroika. But he only did that because a promise was made to him by Baker, I think it was at the time. Was it Baker? No, that's next. Yeah. Was it? Okay. That the United States and NATO would not advance one inch closer to the Russian borders than the eastern borders of Germany if Gorbachev agreed to a reunited journey. So Gorbachev, who I've met, by the way, who's a charming, charming man and brilliant as well, said, duh, agreed. They shook hands and it was done, except it wasn't. Because like almost every treaty that the United States of America has ever made with anybody, they reneged on it, changed their minds and thought, yeah, well, never mind. I know we agreed to that. We've changed our minds and have been 
that's why I talk about going back to 2004. That's when it began that they started incorporating other countries with their, with their connivance, the other countries, I have to say, into NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, supposedly a defensive bulwark against the USSR. Um, and, and so it's from that moment on that Russia started to say, whoa, hold on a minute, I thought we had an agreement. And the poor old gangster Putin as well had thought he could become part of the Western gangster club because they're all bloody gangsters. They don't care about the people, none of them. I'm sorry, but your government doesn't need, the United States government couldn't give a shit about the working man, just not interested. They work for the oligarchs. That's who they're for. That's the way the system's set up. If it wasn't set up like that, you would never have got Citizens United through the Supreme Court. Citizens United is such a retrograde piece of legislation. It allows a piece of jurisdiction, should I say, as it's from something that laughingly calls itself a court. It allows the wealthy to buy elections. That's what Citizens United is. That's what it's for. And they do. We see it constantly. Every single by-election that you get or midterm election that you get, people who have access to money put packs together and do everything that they can to get the candidate that they want elected, elected. Tell me I'm lying and you're an idiot. If anybody who's listening to your program or anybody who hears this or reads it says Roger Waters doesn't know what he's talking about, their elections are free and fair. No, they're not. They're bought. And they do it by buying TV advertising and subs. And people, through no fault of their own, buy it. They, they, they watch the TV and they go, oh, he, you know, Julian Assad, he raped those women in Sweden and he smears cat shit over his you know, over his room in the Ecuadorian embassy. He's, he's crazy and he's disgusting and he's a rapist. He's a convicted rapist. And a <laughs> Russian not, agent. Not. It's, just, it's just they decided to smear him because they want him dead. Anyway, but, yeah, you know, I always come back, and I'm glad, I'm glad now that I can come back to saying, I stand on a very small platform. It's smaller than this laptop, you know. And, and what is it? It's the, it's the declaration of human, uh, the universal declaration of human rights from Paris in 1948, when the fledgling United Nations put this document together. I believe it's either 29 or 30 articles long. And it's a beautiful, beautiful document. And everything comes back to that document for those of us who have lived since 1948. And we have to, at some point in our lives, decide whether we believe in it and think that it's a good document and it's one that should be adhered to by all peoples, all countries, all governments, all over the world, under the supervision of the United Nations or not. Obviously, the United States government doesn't believe in it and is completely disinterested in it and is also completely disinterested in the idea of international law which is why it's not a signatory to the Statutes of Rome. That's slightly another story, but I do believe in it. I know you believe in it. I know Craig Murray believes in it. I know John Pilger believes in it, all right? I know Julian Assange believes in it. 
I know Daniel Ellsberg believes in it. I know millions of Americans believe in it, but your government doesn't. Couldn't care less about human rights. You know, and, and, that is why, and that is why your country is run like it is. That is why the 13th Amendment of the United States, which was meant to emancipate uh, emancip the slaves, um, actually had a, I don't know if it was an amendment to it, it said no man should be kept in slavery or indentured labor, save that he committed crime, which, allowed, which has allowed them to keep going with slavery until the present day. You have a prison population that is 10 times anywhere else in the world by comparison with um, the number of people who live there, the population of any country. You incarcerate far more people per head, if you like, than any other country in the world. Why? Because you make a profit out of it. Oh, look, he's a vagrant. Arrest him. Oh, look, he's smoking dope. Arrest him. Put him in prison. Well, what are they going to do? They're going to work for a dollar an hour. That's what they're going to do for us. Okay, there's fortunes in here. It's brilliant. What a great system. Let's do that. Bloody good idea. Yeah, no lies and detected there. that's what there. they've done. And that's what is happening here now. And luckily, there are a few voices being raised against it. You know, a, a, a few. But they will get louder because we, are, we the people, are many. And they, the oligarchs, are very, very few, but they're very powerful because they are very, very rich. Yeah. All right, before I let you go about the rest of your day, sir, I want to uh, ask you whether you know about the project right now to push the war powers resolutions through Congress to end the war in Yemen. Are you aware about that? No, I'm not. Tell me about it. Well, so what got me thinking was, I've seen a couple of uh, still shots from your concerts recently where there's sort of the big electronic banner that says free Assange or it says, remember, Shireen, uh, Akla and this kind of thing. And I was thinking what would go perfect up there would be 833 stop war and 833 stopwar.com. And what it is is it's a progressive group called Demand Progress hosts the website, but they're a nonpartisan group. They're not tied to the Democrats, but they're a left group. And it's a very simple website. It has some bullet points about the Yemen war, and it has some talking points of what to tell your congresspeople, Republican or Democrat, about supporting what are right now active war powers resolutions to end the Yemen war. It's in both houses of Congress right now. But what are they, Scott? Tell me what they're, or if we haven't got time, you've got my email address. Just yes, sir. Send me the details, by. but I'd love to know yeah. here in front of the people, what, what is it? Well, what it says is it absolutely mandates an end to all American support for the Saudi and UAE war in Yemen. And there's a ceasefire there right now, but this right. essentially would make it illegal. It would force Biden to uh, call a halt to all maintenance, all support, all resupply of weapons, all logistics and intelligence and support for the Saudi and UAE war. And Biden had promised to end it, but then he didn't. Well, who's the, who's the sponsor of this? Well, in uh, the Senate, it's Sanders and Warren and a couple of others. And in the House, it's DeFazio. And I'm sorry, I forget, but there are actually more than 116 co-sponsors in the House right now. So this thing really does have momentum behind it. There's right. about 100 left-wing groups 
And then we're also working really hard to get all libertarian and right-leaning groups on board too. Uh, bringourtroopshome.us and others like that. And so what would they need? Would they need 50% in the House of Representatives? And how much, what percentage of the vote do they need to get this into law? Well, they would need 51% in the House. And I'm not sure if it would be a problem with the filibuster in the Senate if they would need 60 votes or not. But I can tell you this, sir. In 2019, they did pass it with enough public pressure. And unfortunately, Donald Trump vetoed it then. But there would be it would be much more difficult for Biden to veto it with a Democratic Congress passing it. And when he vowed to end the war in the first place in a way that Donald Trump never did. So it's true that he could still veto it, but I don't think that he would. And I think it, there's a very real chance that enough public pressure could force the resolution through and that that resolution could end the war. And I'll tell well, you, your help sure would be how, invaluable. How, tell me this then. If they did manage to get it through, and I will do everything that I can to help you and to help them and to help Bernie and Warren and, and the people in the uh, House of Representatives. If, if, they, if this does become, how does the United States end the war? By stopping selling weapons to them? or giving them weapons, or by in some way censoring um, the, the sovereign kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I mean, that probably wouldn't happen. But yes, it would simply be, it would demand an end to all maintenance. But what you have to understand about this war is, they came to Obama and asked for a green light in the first place in 2015, and that all through the rest of his administration, all through Trump and through Biden's, terms we've been supporting it the whole time and without that support they can't fly their f-15s they can't drop bombs they can't run any of the logistics of the intelligence or any of that themselves it's the usa doing it all for them with the help of the british and the french but if if congress demanded that biden end the war then presumably that would mean he could bring the british and the french along too and pressure the saudis that okay that's it our bluff's been called and we have to stop now so what you're really doing is trying to bring pressure on the armaments industry you're trying to bring pressure on dwight the eisenhower's friends in the military industrial complex right. to shut down some of their operations shut right. down all the operation that is supplying arms to help the Saudis murder people in That's the right. Yemen. So here's here's the thing I think about it is, um, you know, and I know you've been like this for decades too, but we cover these wars, we complain, we educate people, we do everything we can, but here we literally have active war powers resolutions in both houses of Congress, which is yeah. just world historical, unheard of potential cudgels for us to use to really force something to happen here. You know? Right. Well, thank you for informing me on this, and I will try and do something about it in my shows. That's great. That is absolutely great. And I'll be happy to send you all the information in the email. Please there do. And, and Please do, that. Scott. I'll, I, and I will read it all. That's why I do a lot of the waking hours of my days is I just read and read and read to try and stay up to date on this stuff. So that's good news. One little bit of good news. Thank you. Great. And listen, I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time on the show and everything right. about your career up to and including this moment, sir. All right. Scott, thanks. Thank you very much. All right. Cheers. Bye. The Scott Horton Show, Anti-War Radio, can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.